Gamble on, fellas. Gamble on. <laughs> Welcome again to Gamble On, the weekly gambling podcast presented by usbets.com. I'm Eric Raskin, U.S. Bets Managing Editor and Media Director, and I'm joined by our senior analyst, Pulitzer Prize finalist, John Brennan. John, I'm sure you saw the article penned by our colleague, Jeff Edelstein, about a casino payment processor sending out an email urging folks to place a max bet on slots as a way to celebrate National All or Nothing Day, which apparently is a thing someone successfully invented and snuck onto those now overstuffed national fill-in-the-blank day calendars. Uh, Let's ignore the encouragement of irresponsible gambling for now, John. Let's talk about National All or Nothing Day coming up on July 26th. It's supposed to be about going for it, taking a big risk, trying something you wouldn't normally try. So any idea how you'll be spending National All or Nothing Day? National All or Nothing Day. My first thought is to ignore National All or Nothing Day, but (laughs) I do do that every year because I never heard of it before. So that really wouldn't count, I don't think. So Um, there is another episode of The Bachelorette, by the way, on the 26th. So uh, (laughs) I could try and skip an episode. Uh, That seems crazy. Really risky to me somehow, though, so I, I probably won't, even though this is last season was the worst one ever. And this one is even worse than that. But uh, uh, so far, I haven't been able to quit it. Um, so wait, though, you know, I haven't gone on a hike in a couple of years and in part because I'm breaking down like a baseball pitcher who's thrown 150 pitches in one game. But uh, so it has become something I no longer normally try anymore, but I want to. And I've been looking for an excuse, some sort of rationale. Why am I going to? you know, push myself on that because I think I'm just about ready. And now I think I'm going to do that on the 26th. So uh, I'm thinking this uh, irresponsible gambling suggestion aside, uh, I kind of like the idea this day. Okay. Um, so how can it be both the worst bachelor season ever and the most dramatic rose ceremony ever, every week? Because I assume that's what Chris Harrison or whoever's hosting it now uh, says, that it's it's always the most dramatic rose ceremony. Yeah, no, right? Chris, has, Chris has been disappeared. And so has okay. that phrase. So it's no longer <laughs> mentioned. And uh, no, it's just you have... Uh, yeah, the men this year. Yeah, it's not so good there. I mean, when you're weeping because another guy gets tossed out of the house and you're one step closer to the big prize, I, I don't I don't really understand that. I'm not sure they understand the contest exactly. You know, I mean, uh, so you wanted him to win. What, what are you doing there? Though? I mean, <laughs> right, right. Uh, yeah, the, the classic reality TV line is I'm not here to make friends. That should be the attitude we have. Um, there's a there's a core guy who. Uh, well, I, I don't want to spoil for anybody, but yeah, that, that's that has played into the season so far. Let's put it that way. OK. All right. Um, so I thought you might say that you were going to, as your wild and crazy national or nothing day move, boost your sports betting amounts to something like ten dollars for a day or something like that. But I, I guess not. I um, thought about it, but yeah. Yeah, I don't know if I want to do that. Yeah. OK. So for me, uh, this national all or nothing day is well timed. Uh, it's my birthday week uh, th- that week. So it might be good timing for some kind of a midlife crisis move, uh, you know, buy a sports car I can't really afford, perhaps. Um, But I'm not a car guy. And the whole point of having a hot car in my eyes is to pick up ladies and I'm not trying to pick up ladies. So scratch that idea. Um, I did just buy a new house. So I kind of had my all or nothing day already. Um, But other than that, you know, I'm never getting a tattoo. I'm never bungee jumping. Those have zero appeal to me. Maybe I will do one big slots bet. Uh, That's probably the closest thing I can think of to a risk that I'm vaguely interested in. Uh, Not a max bet, uh, but, you know, instead of my usual 50 cent spin or $1 spin on an online slot, maybe one spin for 50 bucks. Yeah, still not great from a responsible gambling perspective, but better than buying an expensive car or or doing something life-threatening, I think. Yeah, I'll tell you, I was pretty creative. I got my midlife crisis car when I was 33 and I was still single. So that worked out really nicely. 1994 Mazda MX-6 fire engine red, spoiler, uh, sunroof, 10 CD changer before anybody even had a CD Mm, changer in their car. Uh, Leather seats. um, Yeah, it was pretty sweet, sweet ride. uh, (laughs) And I got that out of my system. So that worked out nicely. Yes, smart. Well timed. That's that's if you're going to get a hot car, get it while you're young and single. (laughs) That's the way to do it. All right. Thank you to everyone for joining us for episode number 151 of Gamble On. If you missed any of our previous 150 episodes, they're all available on Spreaker, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other podcast apps. And in honor of National All or Nothing Day, 
give us a five-star rating or don't give us a rating at all. Ah, well played. Um, coming up a little later in the show, we're going to be joined by communication strategist Chris Moyer. He's going to give us his take on the polarizing issue of smoking in casinos, whether a ban in some states is possible, how smoking bans impact revenue, and, and more. But first, it's been a very busy week in the world of gambling, I would say. So let's get to it. Here's your Gamble On News of the Week, an inside look at the biggest stories in the world of gambling. We talked last week about New York State's mobile sports betting request for applications because they were delayed. And we're talking about the same subject this week because the RFAs were released on Friday, eight days after the original deadline. We've now seen the 130-page document, and the bidding process can now begin. Let's run down the most notable details of the RFA language. First, there is something called a pricing matrix, which allows sports books to suggest their own tax rates, although 50% or greater is the quote unquote preferred scenario, which I guess means nobody's paying less than 50%. And maybe sports books will offer to pay a little more than 50% in order to improve their chances of getting licensed. There is also a scoring methodology to determine a sports book's qualifications, including points awarded for expertise in the US market integrity of the platform, past relevant experience, advertising and promotional plans, diversity in hiring, and more. And yes, proposing a higher tax rate earns you more points. Uh, it's pretty wild from top to bottom. John, what do you make of all these crazy criteria? Will we see books bidding as high as 55% in terms of the tax rate in order to get into New York and hardly make any money. Uh, and do you see many sports books outside the current big three of FanDuel, DraftKings, and BetMGM even bothering when the cost of doing business is this high? Yeah, I feel like, you know, forget about Jacks are better to open. This is 55% or better to open. Uh, right. You get a 5% bonus for partnering with a tribal casino. So if they want you to start at 50 and you want to get that bonus in, or at least if you don't have that specific bonus, then just offer 55 even without the partnership. Uh, mm -hmm. I can see that. I said it recently on this podcast, uh, New York is that high maintenance guy or gal who drives you crazy, but you know, it, it actually is worth it. Let's be honest. You know, big picture at some point in someone's lifetime, California, Florida, Texas, they'll get in on the sports betting action. And I think having experience in New York will be a big plus to gaming regulators in those states, even if they go a little bit of a different route, which they might. Now in New Hampshire, the drama was for DraftKings to say, and it's gone by a couple of years, hey, we'll split revenue 50-50 with you if we get an entire monopoly. And they right. did and they do. Uh, no monopoly here, but you know, so what is, what is it worth to get just a piece of a giant pizza pie? I, most interesting to me is that these regulations wound up being seemingly written by Governor Cuomo. Earlier this year, a lot of outsiders thought I had one foot out the door between allegations by countless women of inappropriate and worse conduct, as well as the COVID-19 casualty count in the state. But uh, he's nothing if not a fighter. So I'm not too shocked about this part. Um, this also reminds me, though, of your Pennsylvania, where gaming industry leaders a few years back insisted that across the board, massive gambling tax rates. That's going to scare operators away. No one's going to be willing to pay that. And Turns out not so much, and the state taxpayers have done pretty well in Pennsylvania on that front. Uh, and now this looks to be an oversized version of Pennsylvania. Bigger population, higher tax rate, higher tax revenue, and potentially lousier deal for New York gamblers who prefer to bet legally but may find the options unappealing. Um, although Pennsylvania, the you know, options haven't been as bad as uh, we kind of expected, so maybe that'll work out in New York too. And meanwhile, we're not even a month away now from preliminary bids already being due. Uh, and so we're going to get a quick industry response to this uber aggressive Cuomo plan. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the Pennsylvania comparison, because that was something I wanted to touch on, that if Pennsylvania has taught us anything, it's that the high tax rate doesn't really get passed on to the customer. Uh, so, you know, New Yorkers can probably expect the same lines as in other states maybe fewer promos after the initial battle for customers, mm -hmm. uh, you know, with only four or so sports books, the competition won't be that heated. So New Yorkers might not get all those spread the love opportunities for free money, things like that. Um, and of course, you know, four sports books, if that's what they end up with is not enough for optimal line shopping. Um, I was just talking to friend of the podcast, Brad Feinberg, the other day. He says he checks 30 different outs before placing a bet uh, to make sure he's getting the best line. Uh, nice. So, you know, that's a lot. <laughs> but uh, certainly four is not many. Serious New York sports bettors will still be using the offshores, I'm sure, even yeah. after regulated mobile betting arrives in their state. Um, but as far as just this 
the this this framework in New York, the, these rules for bidding for one of these licenses. They've made it interesting and given us something to talk about. <laughs> I'll give them that. Um, I find these technical factors, as they call them, to accrue points fascinating. Expertise, experience, they're saying if you aren't already at least a medium-sized U.S. operator, don't bother. Um, not that smaller operators can really afford to try anyway, but um, I found the advertising and promotional plans part of it to be fascinating because it makes me think, how is a bar stool going to handle that? Um, I'm sure they'd like to operate in New York, but they don't pay for advertising. And especially with the tax rate and the thin margins in New York, they really don't want to spend money on ads. Um, I guess they can call social media a promotional plan, but I, I would think they'd lose some points on that category. But you know, the most fascinating part is just New York trying to lure sports books into offering to pay an even higher tax rate than this already industry high 50%, you know, uh, do I hear 52, 53, or you're saying, you know, 55 might be the baseline. I wonder if there's any chance we would see DraftKings, FanDuel, MGM, et cetera, all talking privately and agreeing to each go in at a particular number, whether that's 55 or whether they all shoot for 50 or whatever it is, just so that they're not kind of outbidding each other i, I don't I, I wonder what the behind the scenes conversations well, well, on that front might look like yeah that's specifically prohibited in the rick and the regulations but obviously you know you can sneak around the corner and, <laughs> right. uh, well can you these days it's probably a camera on you but and, and i might a microphone too but uh I, my intrigue is really there's sort of a hint that you could go in with a partnership i mean you right. know how cool would it be if FanDuel and DraftKings say we're in together for 60 and that's it and we, but we want that to be us. I mean, the 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 um, the final regulations made things more vague in terms of uh, operators and partners, and, and and it could be more than four, but maybe up to four. So it, it's just not clear. I think there's probably oh, there's definitely negotiations going on behind the scenes, but I think it's possible there's some sort of a you know cartel type of thing where it's like you know we'll give you the number, but everybody else is out. And if we don't have to compete against each other, then yeah, we've got all the expertise and the experience and all the advertising, but we don't really need to do any because we're all getting the same deal. So I, and that could be problematic for consumers who, who amateurs, as you say, the, the big guys are playing offshore anyway, so they're not going to care. But, but I think the amateur player who would like to just bet legally, they don't want to get involved. Otherwise um, they may not have a whole lot of options. Yeah, uh, I could see some of those uh, sort of combined bids and uh, rivals working together that you talked about, but uh, I don't think we're going to see the uh, draft duel uh, that, you, that, you, that you've dreamed of. I can't imagine those two working together on this, but whether one of them might partner up with uh, sort of a medium-sized, you know, a, a points duel, for example, something like that. Maybe something like that could be in the works here. Yeah, this is going to be fun, actually, for yeah. us anyway. Exactly. We're not spending, not costing us any money at all. <laughs> yep. All right. Our second story this week gives us a taste uh, for the first time in a long time of Traveling Man John, as you were back out on the road at your first in-person gaming conference since the pandemic began. The summer meeting of the National Council of Legislators from Gaming States, aka Nickel G's, in Chicago. So I'll hand it over to you, John. I'm curious to hear how the in-person aspect was and what percent of the way to quote-unquote normal it all felt, but also the substance of the speakers and the panels. What were some of the highlights? Yeah, I mean, the event itself was shockingly normal uh, at the Hotel Intercontinental downtown Chicago. Uh, no mask required in the ballroom for the panels, virtually nobody wearing one. And just a general feeling of relief among industry folks. And, you know, everybody was saying the same thing, basically, you know, I can't believe our good fortune that we're, we're, we're doing this again, because even three months ago, it didn't even seem like it was a possibility. And and yet, you know, there wasn't these restrictions, regulations, whatever, where you're, you're kind of, you know, tied down to everything. It's like, hey, you know, presumably you're all adults and you're smart about it and you're fine. And um, so that that part was great. You know, there were eight panels open to us non-legislators uh, at the event over two days. And my colleague Chris Altruda and I between us and then caught them all, as well as speeches by Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot and Rush Street Gaming founder Neil Bloom. Uh, you know, mostly familiar topics, but there were new wrinkles to each. Uh, the compulsive gambling panel, for instance, I think was really helpful because 
the analysis was that too much focus is on how to try to help a gambler who may have lost everything, basically, right? And and not enough on figuring out how to help a gambler such as that before they go down the awful rabbit hole. You know, that was sort of eye-opening to me. And I think, uh, you know, it wasn't like a replacement where, you know, divert funds from helping people who are really in, in deep trouble, you know, not that, but keep that, add something else, which is uh, how do we figure out how to raise awareness for a consumer who doesn't realize he's on a bad slide, you know, and if you can raise that, maybe you can stop them from, from going down to the bottom. So that, I like that a lot. Uh, Senator Joseph Adabo of New York, uh, who's the leading lawmaker in Albany on gaming issues. Uh, he shook off having his name mispronounced twice by a, well, less ethnic colleague from the Midwest, I'll say. Um, and that opened the door for Joe to explain not only that he still gets Ajita when he sees New Jersey's massive monthly New York aided sports betting handle, uh, but also the Ajita means upset for the rest of you. Uh, so that was fun. Uh, you know, Bloom expressed to neophyte lawmakers how silly it is to him for states that have legalized mobile sports betting not to do the same for the far more lucrative cousin called online casino gaming. And that's obvious to you or I, and we've talked about it, but these are literally dozens and dozens of lawmakers in a room uh, who don't get it yet. And so I think that that sort of opened the door for some discussion and awareness for them. So that was good. Uh, one panelist got a laugh by showing a photo of their son's university library as a building I'm pretty sure he's never been in <laughs> and just graduated and skin of skin of the teeth was the description of it. That was fun. Uh, there was lots of lottery talk and COVID talk, of course, and some wonky but necessary nitty gritty details that lawmakers in the more backward states really do need. Um, and finally, I could never figure out how the heck, heck Kentuckians are betting $2 billion a year on historical horse race wagering, uh, where you can handicap a race from years ago and then try your luck. And I say can and try because that's the secret. The machines now look for all the world like a slot machine and you put down some money and maybe you win and maybe you don't. And you don't really have to handicap the race. And it's kind of a small screen. And you don't really even have to watch it. You just throw money in and see what happens. And as it happens, Kentucky does not have casinos or race casinos or slot machines, of course. Or do they now that I see these machines? <laughs> uh, so I say they do after having watched a panel on instant racing, they call it, and then doing some research. So uh, I, I kind of solved that question in my mind of like, are, are people betting that much money on a race that happened 10 years ago with uh, no names of jockeys or horse? You know, I, I didn't get it. And you can see that, no, they're not. They're not even looking at the race. They're just it's all the bells and whistles that any slot machine would have. Yeah, I, I found your article uh, on TNBets.com about that subject, this historical horse racing. I found that fascinating. It's not crazy to me that there's some interest. You know, people will bet on anything you put in front of them, but that there's that much interest, $2.2 billion wagered in fiscal year 2020. That's shocking to me. Um, so, um, you know, we're both expecting to be at G2E in Las Vegas in October. Uh Las Vegas is in worse shape in terms of COVID than Chicago, and it's not going to get better from here, I wouldn't think, uh, in terms of, A, the unvaccinated are, are dug in at this point. Not too many of them are going to get vaccinated in the next few months. Um, and as the weather gets cooler, the virus thrives more. We know that. So that's a long way of building toward asking you, coming off this in-person conference, any guesses how quote unquote normal G2E will be, how much mask wearing we'll see, et cetera. Is it, is it going to, will we see many masks uh, or any masks even uh, out in Vegas for G2E, do you think? Right now, I would say no. I mean, you're right that the variant could get worse. I mean, the city is not going to want to uh, go backwards. Um, right or go forward, depending on how you look at it. Um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but uh, so they're, they're going to be resistant to that. But uh, it, it is interesting. I mean, I think the because, of course, G2E is 10 times, at least 20 times as big as Nickel G. So uh, it's a different volume. But um, I, I don't know. I just think the vibe, especially, you know, what happens in Vegas and all that. Right. And uh, so, no, I, I think it's going to be all systems go. Now, it may be, and that's not dangerous and maybe it is but i think it's going to be all systems go either way okay uh so our second story there mostly gave you a platform to speak john our third story will do the same for me as i'm the one who obtained firsthand experience this week playing online poker on wsop.com in pennsylvania uh, this gives us three online poker sites here in pa the same number and the very same sites that you have in new jersey 
the big difference is that we still don't have any interstate player pooling, whereas on this particular site, WSOP, New Jerseyans can play against opponents in Nevada and Delaware. Anyway, the site went into soft launch at limited hours starting Monday and Thursday. As we record this, the site will go live 24-7. I made a deposit and played a bit. Tried to make little progress toward unlocking my deposit bonus, which I have 90 days to do. Uh, the traffic has been light. Tournaments are mostly attracting 50 or 60 entries. The cash games often have just like 10 to 20 players in action total across all the cash tables. And the buy-ins for now are mostly low. We'll see how all that changes once the test period is over. But there's clearly less enthusiasm and less traffic than there was when Poker Stars launched in PA, mostly due to the fact that now poker players in the state have Poker Stars and they also have the BetMGM Borgata sites. So I'm sure that limits the number of people leaping into starting WSOP.com accounts at their first available opportunity. Still, WSOP is the most famous brand in poker. I assume the site will gather steam. Uh, I'll, I'll jump back in uh, shortly to give my thoughts on the actual gameplay. But uh, John, any thoughts on your end on the WSOP launch? And now that the Wire Act concern is resolved, any expectations on when you and I might be able to play poker together across Pennsylvania, New Jersey state lines? Yeah, I mean, the DOJ's announcement last month that it was hitting the basically the Wire Act rewind button to 2011. It should smooth a lot of uh, gaming industry feathers, definitely. But I just fear that New Jersey's deadly dull monthly results. Uh, you know, online poker does about $2 million in revenue and slots and other unlike casino uh, games combined for like 50 times that number each month. I think it's bored Pennsylvania lawmakers a little bit too much. Um, you know, let's get Michigan and Pennsylvania into this poker compact and we all might be surprised at the results. Um, but I think that at this point, maybe the the better play is to say, listen, this is a, 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 a consumer convenience thing. You know, you've got a lot of residents who like to play poker and they want to do it legally and we can make this convenient for them uh, because you can't really sell the, the revenue, even though each each state being added, we know can have sort of a uh, somewhat of an exponential boost, but it's never going to be enormous and it's never going to rival slots. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess uh, if I'd say never is strong, I guess that, I guess that's the only thing I'd push back on. If we get enough states, including major states, like whenever the eventuality of a, of a California joining mm -hmm. in, then it could get enormous again. But yeah, it's we're, we're a long way from it getting anywhere close to enormous. I'll, I'll grant that. Um, a few things uh, about my experience so far uh, playing on WSOP. Uh, first, uh, the worst part, the mobile app wasn't working during the test phase. Um, I could play on my computer, but not on my phone. I got an immediate message on the app that geolocation couldn't determine if I was in Pennsylvania. I have no idea if this was intentional during the test phase that they only wanted it to be on computers or if this was a major glitch. Uh, I will be curious to see today when the site launches fully if mobile geolocation is fine. Another negative for now, very few games to choose from, but I assume that will change. The software takes a little getting used to. The gameplay just isn't as fast or as user-friendly as it is on Poker Stars. I guess partially that's a matter of, you know, I'm accustomed to this, so I prefer what I'm accustomed to. But I do suspect that if 100 people tried both sites for the first time, 90 or so would say they like the Poker Stars interface better. Hmm. Um, but on the plus side, WSOP has a really fun version of a spin and go that they call Blast, which I played a bunch of these. They are for the quick fix types uh, and, and they're great. So Poker Stars has uh, spin and goes where it's a three person single table tournament, winner take all, and a roulette wheel of sorts determines the prize pool. Usually it's 2x or 3x or 5x, some one of those, but there's a chance of a big jackpot hit every mm -hmm. once in a while. Um, Blast is the same, except there's a six minute clock with just three two minute blind levels. And at the end of six minutes, if the tournament isn't over, which it usually is, uh, I think I played like nine of these and eight of them were done before the end of the six mm -hmm. minutes. But if it isn't, then everyone is just automatically all in every hand until someone has all the chips. So you're you're when you sign up to play one of these, you're guaranteed to be done the tournament and able to get back to whatever else you were doing within about seven minutes. Um, I assume WSOP has had this in other states, but I didn't know about it. It's new to me. And, and it's fun for those who like the 25% skill, 75% luck poker experience. Yeah, that almost 
is interesting to me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm never going to play online slots in spite of the constant bombardment I'm getting from my three or four, uh, you know, uh, partners in gambling uh, online. But uh, that I can sort of see because it is a, a finite amount of time. You're just taking a swing, see what happens. And uh, as you say, there's uh, uh, most amateurs don't mind a little luck being involved either <laughs> yeah and probably the best news for you knowing your gambling tendencies buy-ins as low as 10 cents uh, there you go. <laughs> okay i can handle that i think it's time to welcome a special guest from the world of gambling let's get to the gamble on interview John and I spoke not long ago on the podcast about the challenging decisions facing gambling states about whether to allow smoking in casinos, particularly coming out of the temporary ban enforced in many states at the height of the COVID pandemic. Joining us now to go much deeper on that issue is communications strategist Chris Moyer of Moyer Strategies, who has worked in politics as a press secretary for Nevada Senator Harry Reid and as communications director for New Jersey Senator Cory Booker, among other roles, and who worked for three years for the American Gaming Association. To be clear, this is not going to be an evenly balanced conversation. Chris falls on one side of the issue as a smoke-free casinos advocate, but we're eager to hear his insights. Chris, welcome to Gamble On. Eric, John, thank you for having me. It's nice to be here with you. So I mentioned the temporary ban during the pandemic. As COVID-related restrictions have been lifted, how golden an opportunity was this for some states to make it a permanent ban? And, and is there still a good opportunity or, or is the moment passing us by? Well, I think everyone has kind of, uh, because of the pandemic, uh, viewed certain things in public and uh, breathing in air and uh, where they spend their time a little bit differently than before. And to look at the point where we are now, where the governor of New Jersey sounds very um, likely that he would sign legislation that would make Atlantic City Casino smoke-free inside. I think a year and a half ago, that probably wasn't on the table. But uh, this... This year and a half, the, the activism from uh, employees in Atlantic City, the really the facts being on the side of protecting the health of employees and guests um, have been really um, helpful in moving this issue along. And I think it's exposed some of the industry's uh, weak spots on this, where it's harder and harder to defend allowing smoking inside that your employees have to breathe for seven, eight hours on end and combining that, the timing with COVID, um, things are really, you know, progressing in a way that's going to be good for the health of uh, employees and the visitors who go to these casinos. And you've seen in other places outside of New Jersey where, you know, casinos can operate smoke-free. They've been doing it in the places where the bans were in place temporarily. Um, you're seeing tribal casinos. Um, we can get into tribes more in a minute, but tribal casinos really leading on this issue. That used to be the thing that the commercial operators would point to um, as why they couldn't because it would be a competitive disadvantage. Um, but more of the tribes are going smoke-free. And MG, Park MGM in Las Vegas on the Strip just last fall uh, went smoke-free. That was a big deal. So there's, there's other examples I can point to, but you're seeing in different places across the country that the, the you know, keeping smoking inside just does not make any sense anymore. I mean, it's the year 2021. What are we doing? Right. Well, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm on the same side of this uh, as you. I prefer a smoke-free environment myself. But to play devil's advocate on one point you made there about how uh, during uh, the, the pandemic, we all became much more aware of breathing and air quality and, and all that sort of thing. A lot of casinos have, uh, or at least have said, that they stepped up their air filtration game uh, during this. Does that uh, make the case at all for those who want smoking in casinos to be able to say, well, the air filters better. It's not this thick fog that uh, maybe you think of when, uh, with regard to smoking in casinos. Eric, you mentioned something in my, my bio, my three years at the American Gaming Association, where I wrote a lot of talking points. And I tell you what, those talking points uh, may be updated now with the COVID ventilation angle, but otherwise those have not been updated for a very long time. And the fact of the matter is that the engineers who build and design these ventilation and filtration systems um, just a few weeks ago sent a letter to the Casino Association of New Jersey saying that these ventilation systems are no replacement for smoke-free indoor air. 
So the engineers who design the system say that it's not, it doesn't work. So that, that's pretty telling. And then if you want to look at any number of studies, the University of Nevada, Reno, showing that they're not effective, you look at the CDC saying that uh, there's no replacement for smoke-free air. Um, it's it's a, a talking point that I've seen for years, and it just frankly doesn't reflect the facts of how that actually works. Uh, yeah, now, if I want to be a cynic, Chris, I, I look at this uh, from a statehouse politics view, and really, who has more juice in that state, the casinos or the labor unions, especially because, as you mentioned, New Jersey is one in particular where um, that's where a lot of the, the action is coming from. And uh, that's why I think some states you're seeing it uh, go away and some states it's, it's sticking around after all. And so that's the difference. But, you know, if, if there was only, you know, a a parallel universe where there isn't state house politics, where the casino operators really make their own decisions by themselves, almost as a sovereign nation, as that we call them. And suddenly now we're talking about tribal casinos. And so I'm curious, uh, a, a, are they a good uh, place for everybody on the issue to look at? Because they do have an independence that um, that commercial casinos generally don't have. And B, if so, what, what's kind of the results? Are they uh, generally more uh, aggressive in, in eliminating smoking or are they about the same or, or any difference? Yeah, so I think um, I'll point to some examples, uh, but generally speaking, there's been uh, the tribes in the last year have acted more quickly to go smoke free than their commercial counterparts. You look at Navajo Nation uh, just reopened one of its casinos smoke free. Sounds like they're going to open many of their properties uh, smoke free as well. Uh, you look at in Wisconsin, uh, Ho-Chunk Gaming Madison decided five years ago to go smoke free. And they have been outspoken on the fact that they have seen revenue records uh, because people demanded and, you know, enjoy the benefits of a, having a smoke-free environment. You look at tribal casinos in California, um, a lot of them have gone smoke-free as well. So um, uh, Mohegan Sun, Connecticut, uh, remains smoke-free. So you're, you're seeing tribes really um, uh, reconsider their policy on this, and it, it just... Um, makes it harder for the commercial counterparts to use that as a reason not to adopt a similar policy. And to your point, John, I think on the politics of this, we were grateful to have UAW, uh, not just members, but leadership in Atlantic City a couple of weeks ago, uh, the same day that Governor Murphy announced the, uh, the temporary ban would be lifted, but also signaling support for uh, more permanent uh, smoke-free policy. Um, you know, it really comes down to, it's great to hear Governor Murphy's comments, but as you all know, in New Jersey, uh, you know, it's all up to Senate President Sweeney. And there really, there's gonna be a lot of pressure on him yeah. uh, from workers, from others to um, stop defending the casinos on this. Stop, you know, defending this casino loophole that treats workers in Atlantic City casinos different than workers everywhere else in the state. It's hard to find a good rationale for this. Um, so, but it really does, there's gonna be a lot of pressure on Senator Sweeney. Well, and, and I should add that all 120 uh, seats in the uh, state house are open this year are up. And so is the governor's uh, chip as well. And Senator Sweeney happens to be an iron worker by trade. So he's a union member. And uh, however, he has uh, been unpredictable on a lot of issues. And this is one of them. And he definitely being from South Jersey is very aware of, you know, how the casinos feel about it. So uh, I'm not sure what he's going to do. But, you know, as I've written and, and you allude to, um, if Senator Sweeney doesn't support it, it's, it's not going to happen. Yeah, and we've, we've been working to, um, I'd say, share some of the latest information with Senator Sweeney in terms of, let's say, revenue, because Atlantic City Casino earnings, just take the first quarter of 2021, were up 11% over 2019, which is the most recent comparable period. Um, you know, casinos in Atlantic City and in other places across the country have been thriving while operating smoke-free. And that's a point that I think is really, um, it opens people's eyes when you realize this isn't maybe the, uh, the revenue killer that it once was thought to be. Hmm. Yeah, well, and the other last thing about Senator Sweeney is there are a lot of issues where he publicly comes out and says, forget it, never going to happen. And the way he operates, if he doesn't support an issue, it not only doesn't get to a full Senate vote, it doesn't even get to a, a committee vote. It doesn't even get to a committee hearing. It's just dead. So the fact that he has not gone that route here um, is probably a little bit of a window on your side. For that, that might be an optimistic one. That be fair to say. Yeah, and um, the legislation over the last couple of months in New Jersey 
has gained new support, new sponsors from members of the legislature uh, in both bodies. And so we're optimistic that, um, you know, given the governor's comments, given the, the show of um, just real, like the workers are really upset. And the more that is seen and heard, uh, I know there's a lot of grassroots activities that are planned for the coming months. The more that support can build, uh, you really can't rule anything out when it comes to what legislation could get through. All right. So, so you mentioned the 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 revenue issue uh, and and what we were seeing last year and and what it says about uh, you know how much smoking does or doesn't correlate with with revenue. Um, I'll ask you another question here that uh, may give you an opportunity to hit on some of those AGA talking points uh, again. But um, I'm curious what you say to those who say that if their casino has to ban smokers, but some other casino within driving distance doesn't, the pe- that they're going to lose a lot of business. The, the people who say that, how, how valid is that? Like, it, you know, if there's a ban on smoking at casinos in, say, Rhode Island, but not Connecticut and Massachusetts, and I guess that's not the perfect example because of what you said about Mohegan Sun, but just hypothetically, is it unfair from a business perspective to the casino operators in Rhode Island? So I, I think, first of all, we, we have a lot of respect for the business operators here that, you know, this, there's, there's, it's been a hard job, especially the last year with COVID, the shutdowns, the restrictions, like it's not been easy. So, um, you know, and they, you know, these, these folks know their business very well. I say there's a couple things though. There's, there's a fear of even short-term drops in revenue, even if that revenue might rebound in six, 10, 12, 18 months. Um, and also the way there's, um, there's the way things are always done and going in a new direction is hard. And so I I understand that mentality, but what I would say is that what about flipping that and saying, who are you not attracting by having smoking? Who are you losing? Whether it's for the gambling aspect, whether it's for, you know, these days, most casinos, certainly when you're talking Atlantic city or, or Las Vegas, you know, the, the share of folks who go to the casinos to actually gamble is smaller and smaller. So there's all these other entertainment activities that are happening, whether it's a show or um, a convention or other types of meetings. What kind of business are you losing? Because people just can't stand walking through the casino and breathing in the air. You know, everyone has different sensitivities to that scent, to that smell. Um, but there's, there's definitely, you, when you look at the fact that uh, it's like 90% of younger people don't smoke. Um, they're, you know, increasingly the bigger share, you're getting a bigger share of the market that does not like smoking. So the question goes back to what are you missing by, by allowing smoking? And let's not forget the facts here that what are you subjecting your workers to? Um, that you can make the, you can have the revenue conversation over here, but then what is actually the right thing to do for your employees? Um, that's something that, you know, I think folks who feel very strongly on the protecting the worker piece here is, you know, how can you argue that? There is no good argument for that. And what's also frustrating is seeing in comments with investors and Wall Street filings is that, you know, the, the big gaming companies talking about how they care for their team members and they do everything to protect them and they, you know, want to create, a, you know, recruit and retain all their workers. But on the other hand, they're, they're, they're forcing them to breathe in secondhand smoke for seven, eight hours a day. Like that just does not add up. And I think there's a, um, you know, they want to be good corporate citizens, but more people should be looking at um, the, those things not fitting together. Yeah, that's a great point about the workers. Certainly with these, the casinos that currently have restrictions on just the percentage of the casino floor where you can smoke as a patron, I can find my way to a non-smoking area but uh, but but the the dealers and the custodial staff and everyone else they they don't have that choice to avoid the smoking areas if they if they want to or need to. Yeah. I I should mention that the for the first half of uh, uh, Revel's miserable uh, life uh, it didn't have, it banned <laughs> smoking uh, so that was 2012 to 2013 uh, before the bankruptcy in 2014 and the smoking ban is cited as one of the reasons it failed and that's true but you know having covered extensively I can say. 
the fact that they had a smoking ban and didn't market it is what killed them because uh, all the, you know, most of the people who go to Atlantic city casinos want to try the new place in town, right? It's $2 billion. How great is it going to be? And then they don't realize it's not smoking and they feel annoyed and they, they drive away. And meanwhile, as you say, that other set of customers who maybe rarely go to a casino because the five years ago, they kind of noticed some smoke and it kind of bothered them in the, in the smoking area. And so they don't go, if you market to them, you can, you can maybe get more people than you would. And so, uh, that's a mixed bag in terms of what Revel means on a lot of fronts. But then ultimately, the thing I, I struggle with is that, you know, there's nine casinos down there and about six operators own them. And it seems to me that if to 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 look at this, it, it makes me wonder if it's such a great idea to be the one to ban smoking, to market the heck out of it. And you can come out ahead financially. The fact that none of them do it makes me pause a little bit and saying it's almost like, well, do they not know their own business? I mean, you're right about, you know, companies tended to be traditional and all that. But here's an opportunity to take a big swing. Let's say if you're one of the smaller casinos in Atlantic City and nobody's doing it or coming close to doing it. So does that make it difficult for you to make that claim just because um, it seems like you almost have to be saying that the operators don't know their own business? No, I'm not saying they don't know their own business, but I'm saying that sometimes innovation can be hard to find in this industry. I mean, the most minute changes to a slot machine count as the biggest um, things that appear at, at G2E in Las Vegas every fall. Um, it, it's, it's not, again, an industry that is coming up with these huge innovations that's willing to take risks all the time and try things. So uh, we would encourage them, someone to do that. Uh, <laughs> But I think a lot of, you mentioned, you have a small number of operators generally, and uh, they know what seems to work in other markets. And so one of them, we encourage them to take a risk and, and try this. And I don't think it would end up being that much of a risk after all. Yeah. Ironically, all you're doing is suggesting that they take a gamble, right? <laughs> <laughs> well said, John. <laughs> well, great stuff. Uh, we really appreciate your time, Chris. It was great talking to you. Thanks so much uh, for coming on the podcast and sharing your insights on this topic. Thank you, guys. Really appreciate the conversation. All right. Thanks, Chris. Two men. $10,000. Will they run it up or blow it all? It's time to check in on the Gamble On bankroll. Some ups, some downs, but all in all, a winning week for the bankroll, uh, thanks to one nice futures bet coming in. That futures bet was my $100 wager right after the French Open on Novak Djokovic to win Wimbledon at plus 130. So that earned us $130 in profit. That was our biggest win of the week. Our biggest loss of the week was also mine. We lost $106 on my bet on Chris Paul, over 35 and a half combined points, rebounds, and assists in game two of the NBA Finals. He put up 23-4-8 for a total of 35. <laughs> Rough one. Uh, but we got a good beat uh, on your Padres money line bet. Uh, they trailed the Nats 8-0 on Thursday, but rallied to win 9-8 in the bottom of the ninth. Just a small win of $35 there. We also had a small win of $50 on my bet on Poirier to beat McGregor and a small loss of $15 when my latest bet on a boxing draw failed. So in total, we won $94 on the week. We are now down by an almost respectable $687. We also have $1,472 on hold in futures bets. And I want to update some of those. But first, anything to say about last week's results? Well, yeah, you know, all-star Hugh Darvish got pummeled in the Padres game. And then he revealed after the game that, well, he's had a series of aches and pains for a couple of weeks and mm. now he needs a rest. And, you know, for the sake of integrity, remember integrity? Or, <laughs> yeah, I've heard about it. It was all the rage with all the leagues before they lost a pass for sports betting case in New Jersey three years ago. Now, you know, not so much. Uh, I think I'm betting on a stud pitcher. Instead, I'm I'm picking a lame one. Uh, and I looked around. There's no scandal on this, as it had been predicted. Uh, I haven't lost complete faith in Major League Baseball and whether the games are fixed against me. And I, I don't really feel that way. And uh, so <laughs> and uh, this might be a good time to mention that my Louis Ustay is in pick to win the uh, Open Championship. Uh, he's the f- first round leader in the early wave. So that's kind of a nice start.
Yes, indeed. Knocking wood on that one. Hopefully we'll have some good news on that next week. But speaking of uh, bets that are not final yet, but that we want to update, uh, let's talk about some futures. We're coming out of the all-star break in baseball. Good opportunity to check in on all of our season-long MLB bets and see where they stand. Uh, I've ordered these from biggest bet size to smallest. Uh, the biggest is my $236 on the Pirates under 60 and a half wins. They are 34 and 56 on pace for 61 wins. So we are just a tiny bit off pace on that one. Uh, you put $224 on the Cubs to finish within 12 and a half games of the White Sox. At the All-Star break, they're separated by 10 and a half games. So we're in trouble there, and the Cubs are going to be sellers, unfortunately, but it's not over yet. Uh, the next biggest bet is my $177 on Bryce Harper under 37 and a half homers. He has 15. Uh, if he had played every game, he'd be on pace for 36, but he's missed 20 games. So we're in good shape there, although it's not quite a lock. Uh, next, you have a $110 bet on the Dodgers under 103 and a half wins. They're on pace for about 99 and a half. So again, we're favorites, but we're not quite out of the woods. And lastly, you have $50 on Trey Turner to win the stolen base title at plus 450 odds. He's third in MLB with 19, trailing Fernando Tatis Jr. with 20 and Whit Merrifield with 24. So five stolen bases off the pace, definitely drawing live. John, anything to comment on there? Well, you know, anyone who bet on the Dodgers is in a bit of an awkward position, to be honest. Um, you know, Trevor Bauer's status is is really uh, critical to them. And mm -hmm. basically, if if his claim that everything involved with this woman was consensual, then he gets back on the field and it hurts your chances of winning the bet. And you get a boost if, God forbid, um, he's arrested and charged. Mm -hmm. And there's a, I mean, you know, it's just a, it's a nightmare. So uh, that goes a bit beyond whether you win or lose your stupid bet. So uh, <laughs> right. I'm not going to root on that. So I hope he, I hope this is, uh, is this all blows over it's not anything terrible that happened and he gets back on the field and he pitches terribly and we get the win anyway <laughs> right. um and then one other thing is it wasn't until you laid out those numbers that i'm realizing we sort of unconsciously raised our stakes and we were flush and now we've cut way back while we're struggling and i guess that maybe makes sense right uh yeah it does make sense and uh we'll be glad we did if the big ones uh, win for <laughs> us <laughs> we'll see at, at least uh of, of the three bigger ones that are for a much higher dollar amount than we normally risk at least one of them the Bryce Harper one is in real good yeah. shape. The others are if, iffy to to slightly worse than iffy, but uh, we'll see. We still got well, a lot of the, season ahead of us. The Pirates are about to sell off their all-star second baseman, Adam Frazier, and um, they have one good relief pitcher, their closer, and he's probably going to go in the next week or two also. So um, that's going to help a lot. I mean, sometimes a bad team has a – you know, a closer who winds up being a setup man for a good team. And then they might still have another good reliever or two and kind of fill in just as well. Uh, Pirates, uh, not so much. So I think we're going to be okay with that one after all. Yeah. Pirates as sellers. Who could have guessed it? <laughs> uh, what are we at? About 15 years in a row of Pirates as sellers at the Pretty trade much. deadline. All right. So factoring in all of our wins, losses, and futures bets, we now have $7,841 available to bet with this week. And I'm up first and I'll start with the NBA finals. Game five is Saturday, uh, but lines went up almost as soon as game four ended on Wednesday night. Of course, we have a bet made several weeks ago on the Suns to win the title. It's truly 50-50 right now in my eyes. The Suns have home court in games five and seven and the home team has won every game so far. But Chris Paul looks to be hurting. If he's operating not all that close to 100%, then the Bucks are the clear favorite in my view. For game five, though, the Suns are favored as of now by four points at most books, but by four and a half at Fox bet. That's a pretty good number on the Bucks, getting four and a half points, even though I'm sure the whistles will go Phoenix's way at home. A diminished Paul makes it hard for me to favor the Suns. So I look at taking the Bucks plus four and a half as both a good bet on its own and a hedge of sorts against our Suns title bet. And we have that nice middle. If the Suns win this game by one to four points, we win this bet and we have a 3-2 lead in the series. If the Bucks win the game, then we'll be happy we made this hedge bet. And if the Suns win and cover, at least it means our Suns title bet is in good shape. Uh, this flies in the face of the national all or nothing day spirit, but uh, so be it. Let's go $110 to win 100 on Milwaukee plus four and a half on Saturday night. 
I'm going to, I'm going to thread this series even further for you. Um, okay. You know, like, like most of America, I've struggled to get into this NBA finals between arch rival cities, Milwaukee and Phoenix. I mean, <laughs> those people just hate each other. Yes. Oh, the, the chatter is just brutal uh, going online. I'm sure. Um, so give me one twenty to win a hundred for the series to go seven games. That's that way. At least I'll watch game six, uh, which giving the, current scheduling will be what like august 1st or so i think <laughs> uh yeah they are spacing it out quite a bit <laughs> I, I i like that bet that's pretty good i guess uh, again the home team has won every game so if that continues uh we're, we're getting the seventh game all right uh for my second bet i'll turn to boxing excellent fight on showtime on saturday night competing against the nba finals game uh this is for the championship of the world at 154 pounds Jermel Charlo versus Brian Castaño, highly competitive fight. Uh, Charlo is about a two to one favorite. That's just about right. Kind of hard for me to bet either side of this one straight up, but in the method of victory props, even though I think Charlo by decision is the most likely outcome, I think Charlo by KO, TKO, or disqualification has the best price. That's plus 250. It's a bet we're going to lose more often than we win, uh, so so I'll keep it small. But I do see a little value there. So let's just risk forty dollars to win a hundred on Charlo by KO. All right, now I'm going to get a little bit of a head start for us on our Olympics betting. Uh, mm. Over forty three and a half gold medals for the U.S. as I get all nationalistic, uh, one ten to win a hundred. Okay. Uh, I, I wasn't sure if maybe when you said you were going to get started on Olympic betting, if uh, you were going to put a, a wager on Bruce Springsteen's daughter in the uh, equestrian competition, oh. <laughs> but uh, we'll save that for next week. Yeah, I, I really wish that the Freehold Raceway would have a big time uh, promotion at their track for betting on that because mm-hmm. uh, that is Bruce's hometown, but uh, I don't think that's going to happen. Maybe Mammoth Park will come up with something. Who knows? So what was the size of that bet on the uh, 110 to 100, 110 yeah. to win hundred. All right, here we go. Olympics are underway, uh, at least for us. Uh, and that will do it for this episode of gamble on. Thanks to everybody out there for listening. And thanks again to our guest, Chris Moyer. You can find me on Twitter at Eric Raskin and John at Bergen Brennan and follow us bets at us underscore bets. Go to usbets.com for all the latest news and analysis from the world of gambling and subscribe to this podcast on Spreaker, Apple podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else. And with that, John, Please take us out. Yeah, well, that trip to Chicago that we mentioned for me was it's my first flight in 18 months. And I'm going to tell you, guys, uh, flying still kind of sucks. Um, and when your Tuesday night flight gets canceled and you get double whammy into a 7 a.m. flight the next morning with a connection in D.C., yeah, the beatings will continue. But that return reminded me of a gamble we all see before every flight. A bunch of people hovering near the gate with big ass bags. <laughs> they hope to cram into an overhead. <laughs> You know, people, people, you may not know this, but frequent flyers, of which I have not been one in 20 years, this is not me, but they have a term for you. And the term is gate lice. Because no matter what the airlines try to do, it seems to be impossible to get rid of such people. That's, a, that's not a great look if that's you. Uh, you know, age brings a certain amount of wisdom. So let me suggest this. What price for your dignity? I mean, nice work, dude. You boxed out both of the two old ladies with steel cases, more than half their body size, and also the young and experienced travelers. Don't yet anticipate the big opportunity when the next zone is about to be called. But I mean, here's the deal. If you're in a category where 35 bucks isn't a hardship, just check the damn bag, even if it's technically, you know, for the overhead. Uh, If anything, that would mean you can bring an even larger bag with even more stuff on your trip and not have to lug the big bag around the airport either. And if 35 bucks is dicey and most of us have been there, just sit back and let the lice have their fun. By the time you board, it'll be long past the time that they're checking carry-ons at the, at the gate. And guess what? That's free. So now you didn't have to pay the 35 bucks. <laughs> and meanwhile, when I got to the baggage pickup area at Newark Airport on Wednesday afternoon, you know, the sign above the carousel explained to me that it would be four minutes before my bag came out. And one minute after that, I was on my way. Am I willing to surrender five minutes so I can keep my dignity and keep my blood pressure low and have a more convenient way to get around the airport? Absolutely. I'd say it's a lock, in fact. And with that, until next time, everybody, gamble on.